This is not the media. This is hell. Damn, those some loud buttons, my friend. Who was that? Was the band that you were playing before? Moondog? I don't know. Oh, he's a freak and composer from uh, mid-20th century. He's great. I'll send you, I'll show you a picture. He uh, looks like how you'd expect. He looks like Gandalf. Why do I... Is this somebody that you were joking around with uh, Jonah? Because there was a picture of the guy who looked like just like my brother. Oh, he does kind of look like your brother, actually. All right, that's why I knew the name. I knew it was somewhere in the back of my head somewhere. I had no idea. Yesterday, reproductive rights advocates, those supporting a woman's right to choose, to plan a family, scored what some were calling a major victory, what others were calling an historic victory, when a 5-4 to four ruling by the Supreme Court overturned a Louisiana law that limited access to abortions based on requiring doctors to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals in case a patient needed to be hospitalized in in an emergency. This means Louisiana, which only has four, count them, four abortion clinics, will not have to close three of those four clinics, leaving Louisiana with only one clinic when roughly 10,000 abortions are performed in the state every year. But this is hell, so our guest may not have as rosy a picture of yesterday's ruling and the fight for a woman's right to choose. In fact, our guest today argues the war over Roe v. Wade has already been lost. And after interviewing 28 anti-abortion activists for her new book, she has a unique perspective. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Jennifer L. Holland, author of Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. The anti-abortion movement of the late 20th century completely changed conservatism into a new social conservatism that co-opted liberal ideas like human rights and civil rights and radical black feminist concepts of the personal as political, combining that with victimization to come up with a potent new brew of politics that would completely reshape not only the Republican Party, but the entire U.S. political scene from right to left. Jennifer is assistant professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. She specializes in history of gender, sexuality, race, and conservatism in the North American West. And what's her Twitter address again? Alex, I forgot to copy it into here. Uh, I believe that's uh, Prof. Prof. Jen Holland, right? Yes, that's correct. Prof. Jen Holland, that's with two N's. You can follow her on Twitter at Prof. Jen Holland. Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell. You are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us with our horrible business model, go to our website, thisishell.com. Click on support where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? Don't make me regret this one. This week's question from hell is... Who are you pointing a gun at? Oh, Jesus. Who are you pointing a gun at? Unless that's a bad idea. <laughs> Who are you pointing a gun at? All right. And uh, we cannot, uh, you know, give you any sort of legal advice on how you should be answering that question anyway. But who, how about this? Who or what are you pointing a gun at, Alex? That way they might be able to get away with uh, something uh, else. Maybe we should go for who or what are you pointing a gun at? 
The listener with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can see the mask right now. Even order your own when you go to thisishell.com and click on support to get to get to our swag page. Again, leave your answer to our question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, right after Jeff Dorchin delivers his moment of truth. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question following our guest. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Yesterday I was telling you about all the breaking news in my home. That is how since the global pandemic landed on our shores here in the United States, everything's been breaking in mind, my girlfriend's house. From the microwave to the furnace to the oven to the roof leaking to the water heater dying, the entire place seems to be falling apart around us. But for me, losing hot water was brutal every morning since I can remember. I've woken up and gone directly into the shower, a shower that usually lasts a half hour at least, a shower that consists mostly of me just sitting on the floor of the tub, letting the water wash away whatever foul sins may still be left over from the previous night's debauchery. It also helps me concentrate and organize my thoughts for the morning's show. It's sobering, not that I emerge all serious, sensible, and solemn with some kind of feigned formal dignity. It's more the sobering of purging whatever is left over in my system from the night before. And I don't mean only alcohol, but that's part of it too. I also have to purge any personal distractions to better focus on the show. Like yesterday, finding out that the fire pit where my family spends our vacation every year, the fire pit out in front of our cabins, out on the shore of the lake, has been completely transformed from a 10 by 10 foot square of four rotting, fallen pine logs underneath the canopy of a dying oak that was cleaved by lightning a few years ago with a patch of razor-like sawgrass acting as a barrier from the breeze off the lake, protecting the fire and keeping us warm even when the wind is gusting, that they took this beautifully rustic and unkempt area my family has enjoyed every summer every summer evening as we sit in a kind of communal togetherness with nature. We've been sitting there for decades, decades and decades, decades before I was even born. And unfortunately, they cleaned up the fire pit. They ripped out the sawgrass, tore out the old logs, and replaced what was a fire pit with a corrugated steel cylinder stuck in the ground to act as some sort of fireplace. It's the kind of suburbanization that takes place far too often when Whitey goes up north. It's, instead of enjoying the nature around them, they, they want to control it, regiment it into some generic and boring status quo of manicured lawns that sucks the life out of whatever nature is left. See, i got to purge those kinds of distractions, or else I'm, I'm sitting here doing the show and getting pissed about the fire pit instead of concentrating on an important conversation on the history of the anti-abortion abortion movement in the United States and how it affected all of American politics. With a morning shower that important to my regular pre-show routine, immediately after yesterday's show, I went home and we awaited the replacement water heater to be installed and to have the roof patched. I generally don't do any of the interacting with contractors because I don't have the carpentry or woodworking skills or any real repair or maintenance skills at all, all of which my girlfriend has because she comes from a family of Swedish carpenters. We even have a great uncle's carpentry chest that he brought over from Sweden. 
I also cannot see very well, so her combination of sight and skills puts her definitely in charge. When the roofers arrived this weekend to inspect the problem and determine what action to take, they kindly and safely wore secure medical face masks, which was truly appreciated. They made their pitch, seeming competent. They offered a contract with half of the money up front, the other half after the job is complete, around a couple thousand bucks, a cost that will be split with the other tenants in the building, thankfully. Everything seemed on the up and up, all very kosher until yesterday when the roofers returned to do the work in blistering 90-degree heat, augmented by the silver roof paint reflecting even more heat, making it even hotter up there. This time, they were not wearing their masks. Of course, we were concerned still wearing our masks, but we were social distancing, so it wasn't that big of a deal for us. That's when we realized what a mask may be hiding. And what the roofer's mask may be hiding is... He may have a real taste for Scooby Snacks, if you know what I mean. Because I wouldn't have known that what that meant until I looked up slang for crystal meth this morning. Yes, he just might be in love with Christina, jacked on gack, filled with rocket fuel and looking forward to some post-work cookies. Or maybe he just has dental problems and they reveal the shortcomings of U.S. healthcare. Reportedly, there was no telltale perfect circle of a hole right in the middle of his incisors, which cops have told me real meth heads wear as a badge of conquest and control over their habit. Maybe he's just like me, poor and without dental insurance. Who am I to judge someone with bad teeth? Mine are a freaking wreck. I mean, not like the roofers, but not that great either. It all reminded me of an interview we did with journalist Mary Otto back in April of 2017 on her book, Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. It reminded me of the discrimination people like myself who have imperfect dental work face when applying for a job, when meeting people for the first time, the conclusions that are reached about people with bad teeth before we even open our disgusting mouths to say whatever hideousness spews out of our pie holes. Likely the roofer's not a meth head, just a hard-working guy who, like most of us, cannot afford real health care, and like those who cannot afford real health care, face discrimination from judgmental pricks like me every day. He finishes work telling us he was going to leave some of his materials behind up on the roof, and he would come back and pick them up later. So, after inspecting his work, we realized that they were not finished and some holes in the roof remained, which was concerning as there were intense storms scheduled for yesterday, which did occur. We called to ask when he would finish the job, and he replied, when are you going to pay me the rest of the money? We explained, not until you finish the job, to which he replied that he needed money now, fast, to pay one of his helpers who needed cash now and fast. We agreed to throw him a couple hundred more bucks of the second half we still owed him, at which point he seemed incredibly satisfied and very, very relieved. You know, like that feeling you get when you want something really, really bad, but don't have the money for it. And when you do get the money before even purchasing what you need so badly, there seems to be a weight lifted from your shoulders, replaced with the hope of finally getting what you desire so much. And I'm starting to think our roofer is a meth head after all. Or worse, he's not, and I am reinforcing class discrimination and the dehumanizing of the poor. I have to consider, is this guy a meth head who won't finish the job and will take our money anyway? Or am I just a judgmental elitist, the exact kind of person I do not want to be, the exact kind of people I criticize on this show?
For me, existentially, even when I'm getting the roof repaired. This is hell coming up despite yesterday's Supreme Court victory. The war over Roe v. Wade may already be lost. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The anti-abortion movement of the late 20th century changed everything. It morphed conservatism into a new social conservatism, made the Republican Party into a vehemently anti-abortion party, something it was not before the movement. In fact, it changed all of American politics. Here to explain just how transformative the anti-abortion movement was in the United States, even reconsidering what it means to be Christian and what it means to be white, Jennifer L. Holland is author of Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement, Welcome to This Is Hell, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer is assistant professor of history at the University of Oklahoma, where she specializes in histories of gender, sexuality, race, and conservatism in the North American West. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Prof. Jen Holland. That's with two N's. Prof. Jen Holland. Now, when we scheduled you to be on this week's show, we had no idea that on Monday they were going to be making the decision on the case in uh, the Supreme Court case. Yesterday, as the New York Times reported, the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that could have left the state with one single abortion clinic. If the law, Jennifer, had not been struck down, how would life have changed for not only women in Louisiana who would have severe limitations on health care accessibility, but how would the Louisiana law, if it was upheld, affect women in other states? How would this have an impact on the entire anti-abortion movement? Yeah, um, the Louisiana law uh, was sort of the culmination of a lot of efforts by the anti-abortion movement for a lot of years, sort of putting forward anything that would sort of stick against the wall of these state legislatures to erode uh, erode abortion access. And the this particular law, which of course had already the uh, identical version had already gone up to the Supreme Court in 2016 and been struck down. If the court had upheld it in the June medical uh, case, it would have made uh, abortion functionally illegal in huge portions of the United States. Any state that had uh, an anti-abortion majority in the legislature would have quickly passed these exact laws, and some states already had them and were waiting. Um, you know, they had been, uh, since the 2016 case, had been waiting to see if it would be help, held up as constitutional this year. But it would have been made them functionally legal. Or, and I think this is what a lot of people thought could happen, is that this would be the opportunity for the court to overturn Roe altogether. That it, it didn't, it was a surprise. Yesterday's uh, decision was a massive surprise. Roberts um, seemed to hold to precedent, even though he had been a part of the minority in the 2016 decision. He thought that the, the virtually identical law was constitutional in 2016, but decided that that decision meant that he should um, he should strike down this law in 2020. And of course, the the court has changed massively between those four years with the addition of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. 
Um, people assumed that the court only took this case because they intended to uphold this law and giving the anti-abortion movement either the overturning of Roe or this incredible uh, tool to make abortion almost impossible to get, which it's already really hard to get, but but basically impossible to get in in huge numbers of American states. So Robert's dissent on the same case in the past, in the Texas case, but this time he flips uh, positions because last time it did not pass, which sets precedent. So he just goes with precedent. That makes sense. The logic kind of makes sense there. To what extent does that necessarily mean Robert's will from this point forward be a supporter of a woman's right over her own body? Yeah, I I think that is a real stretch. Um, He is not particularly interested in abortion rights per se. And I think what this does do is it means that the anti-abortion movement will have to bring up some of these other laws that they have been trying out that the court has not yet decided on. Um, and, and I think that Roberts will be much more sympathetic because he is sympathetic to a lot of the anti-abortion arguments as he showed in 2016. And so the anti-abortion movement they, on the one hand, I don't think they should discount Roberts as an ally. They just need to give him something that he hasn't already, that the court already hasn't ruled on. But I do think that it suggests that Roberts is not going to be a part of the overturning of Roe, because of course, if if precedent from four years ago matters, then Roe, which has been precedent for almost 50 years, would certainly matter. So I think that now the anti-abortion movement is going to have to put up another type of law through the through the appeals process to try to get to the court and also they are going they will realize they do realize that um, in order to get to that ultimate goal of overturning Roe they're going to need another justice um, and and that means winning uh, winning the election in November so how much is this uh, you were saying that this is a surprise but how much is this a victory for women's health care rights because the last year i could find the number of family planning facilities in louisiana was for 2017 and at that point the state only had four such clinics and they performed nearly 10,000 abortions 9,920 abortions which comes out to around nine abortions per business day so yes it's mm-hmm. it's a victory to stop louisiana from dropping to only one abortion clinic. But after this victory, how limited is a woman's access to a reproductive health care clinic still in Louisiana? How much of a victory is this considering all of the losses the abortion, the pro-choice movement has experienced over the years? That's exactly right. I think that this is a victory because everyone was prepared for a massive defeat, not because this actually increases access or preserves real access to abortion in the United States. We don't have that right now in most states, outside of states like California and New York. In the last 20 years, the anti-abortion movement has been incredibly successful at a across most of middle America, getting abortion clinics to shut down simply because it is too onerous for them to continue operating. Um, And they've often had state and federal laws and money um, at their back when they do so. And so already it is incredibly hard for a lot of women to access abortion in the United States. And of course, that, that that obstacle course that women have to run in order to get abortion is always easier for 
for women of means and women who have privilege to sort of navigate that. That is poor women and women of color who are already uh, suffering under under this maze of abortion laws that have been upheld in the past by the Supreme Court as constitutional, and that anti-abortion activists have uh, have gotten legislators in in office who are willing to pass them. So yes, this is a this is a victory only if you really were ready for um, for abortion to be illegal in most states to go from one or two or four to zero in a state, um, or if you were preparing yourself for the overturning of Roe, which I think a lot of people were. So in that case, it's a victory. In the case of actually making abortion um, access available to women, which is their constitutionally guaranteed right, that is not that is not changed. That is still that is still not the reality for for American women. Uh, finally, the Times states that the Louisiana law at issue in the new case was enacted in 2014. It required doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Justice Stephen G. Breyer, writing for a majority. By the way, I love the Times adding in the middle initial because I didn't know which Justice Stephen Breyer he was. they were talking about. Uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, writing for a majority, argued that the law imposed great burdens on access to abortion but did nothing to protect women's health. Its ostensible goal. He wrote that hospitalizations after abortions are rare. The women would receive medical care at hospitals, whether their doctors had admitting privileges or not, and that abortion providers are often unable to obtain admitting privileges for reasons unrelated to their competence. So it makes sense you would want any healthcare facility doctor to have access to the nearest hospital. But if this is not an obstacle, if they already have such access for any of their patients' needs, then this law would seem burdensome, as Justice Breyer suggests. How often have arguments used by the anti-abortion movement, how often have arguments to limit women's access to health care by those who are opposed to reproductive rights, how often are they framed within protecting women's health? Have reproductive rights opponents won legal victories, had significant legal success in eroding a woman's right to health care by claiming they're actually protecting the woman's health while denying her access to health care? Yes, this has been one of the most productive and successful avenues of argument for the anti-abortion movement for the last at least 20, but probably 30 plus years that they really throw their weight behind this argument beginning in the 80s that women are like fetuses, women are victims of abortion and that it is really the anti-abortion movement that's protecting women's health and women's psyches. And and they generate all of this um, information uh, that women, that abortion damages women. And, you know, these are partial studies, half truths, just straight out lies. But they've generated these ideas over the course of the last 40 years. Um, and they really are making they have been the most compelling to courts in terms of upholding these laws. And they name them, you know, the names of these laws sort of speak to this, like women's right to know laws, right? And the, what they're actually doing is saying, you have to tell a woman in a particular state if she's seeking an abortion, half truths about about the implications of abortion, that abortion is very dangerous. That is, you know, abortion is safer than giving birth, right? But uh, emphasizing sort of fetal pain and all these sort of non-truths that you have to tell women before they access this medical procedure. And it's, and it's, um, 
in order to provide an abortion in many states, doctors have to provide that abortion. But you call it women's right to know bills, and it sounds feminist. It sounds like good medical practice, right? Um, and and this is sort of a way that you get a lot of uh, the populace to support this, but also the way you get um, sort of uh, courts to support it. And even Kennedy in um, the uh, 2007 decision sort of conceded um, that or, or agreed with the anti-abortion movement that that abortion damaged women. Right. Um, and this is contrary to what the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association, all of it, you know, who do all of these rigorous peer reviewed studies, they keep saying, no, right. Women are not medically damaged. Women are not psychologically damaged by abortion. And yet the anti-abortion movement, through the force of their uh, their arguments, the loudness of their arguments through these uh, very partial studies that they generate, they have um, really changed a lot of people's minds about this. How successful has the anti-abortion movement been then in the co-optation of more liberal or leftist ideas, ideas like feminism. You point out how they do have the co-optation of uh, black feminist ideas like the personal being political. Mm -hmm. How successful is that kind of co-optation of leftist liberal ideas at attracting maybe leftists and liberals to their cause? Yeah, I think that they, that uh, anti-abortion activists have been successful in large part because they have co-opted leftist ideals, that the anti-abortion movement very much figures itself as the extension or inheritor of the civil rights movement, as the movement that is the extension of sort of the um, anti-fascist or sort of uh, opposition to, you know, genocide um, group, and that they have figured themselves very much as a civil, as a civil rights movement for fetuses. And this I don't think has brought in liberals per se. In fact, I think it has alienated a lot of people, a lot of uh, people of color who may are, might be religious, might actually believe that abortion is wrong, but the anti-abortion movement has co-opted these ideals without actually engaging racism in any substantial way, without engaging any other issues that deal with um, women's uh, livelihoods. They, uh, they, they simply do not do that. They see abortion as the origin of all sexism, of all racism, of anti-Semitism, that abortion is sort of the root of the problem. And so if you just deal with abortion, all these other issues will fall away. And so I don't think that they seduce liberals, but what I do think they do is that they allow white conservatives to feel moral. Right. To feel like they are a part of the progressive narrative of American history, that they are not in line with the segregationists of the 1950s and 60s. They can be in line with the civil rights movement, that they can be they can be abolitionists, right, not segregationists. And so I think that is compelling for a lot of white people who are struggling to find um, what white what white means in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, um, how to feel moral while also maintaining racial and gender hierarchies in the ways that the feminist movement, racial justice movement expose. And so, and I think it makes it compelling for young people. I think that social conservatives who haven't co-opted liberal rhetorics 
have had a hard time selling their issues. And I think we can see this, especially with issues around gay marriage and gay rights, that social conservatives sort of lose their youth because those are not compelling. They they focus on issues of liberty often rather than these issues of civil rights. And I think that you can galvanize conservative youth if you make them feel a part of this progressive story, feel moral, feel righteous, feel like they are akin to um, civil rights activists or, or akin to abolitionists. And so, I think that, sorry, go ahead. You go, you go ahead. I was just going to ask something else, but go ahead. No, so I think that that's one of the reasons for the longevity of this movement, why they're why this movement's able to sustain this this emotional energy um, for so long over this period of time where so many other social issues sort of come and go. Why does that civil rights framing have the longevity that the liberty framing does not have? And do you, where do you see that framing today when it comes to conservative politics? Is it leaning now more towards liberty or is it now leaning more towards civil rights? Has it learned from the anti-abortion movement that they should focus on civil rights and not liberty? Yeah. Um, I think that what happens in the 70s is that the memory of the civil rights movement shifts radically, right? That in the 60s, you have so many people who are really still calling the civil rights movement, you know, riotous and and highlighting the law breaking and all these kinds of things, right? And then there's this shift in the 70s, this whitewashing of the civil rights movement, um, especially as black powers rising and all these things that they sort of forget conservatives, white conservatives sort of forget that they ever um, had any problems with the civil rights movement. And they sort of remake Martin Luther King after he's murdered into this sort of law-abiding, peaceful activist who did activism the right way. The 70s, that sort of changes, and they they sort of erase their previous opposition, right, um, and, and sort of make the civil rights movement um, useful to them, right, in the erasure of how radical the civil rights movement really was, and and erase their opposition to it. And so I think in that in that erasure, um, the civil rights movement becomes a part of America's progressive story of, about increasing access to rights, right? That we that we as a nation increasingly uh, are better for our citizens. That we increasingly open up right, for the citizens, and we increasingly become better. The civil rights movement becomes so much a part of that story, and conservatives don't want to be left out of that story. And so I think that they so they immediately in the early 70s are connecting um, their movement to that movement, sort of very, in a, in a very savvy way, right, connecting Roe uh, to sort of the, the Dred Scott case, right, saying that the Dred Scott case, which ruled that you know, black people were not equivalent citizens or as the move, the anti-abortion movement says that they're not fully human. Right. They say, oh, well, Roe does the same thing. They immediately are saying those kinds of things to try to take that moral power from black activists and you put it to their own conservative purposes. I think that conservatives now, you know, there's been so much um, change in the last month, it's hard to gauge where the anti-abortion movement uh, sort of fits in that. You know, you certainly don't see anti-abortion activists going out on the streets, as you have not seen them go out in the streets for any black um, any black movements over the course of the last 50 years. So I think the silence there is pretty clear. 
that they still do not, they, they might still speak in the language of civil rights and they continue to do so, but they are not joining with um, people working for racial justice. Um, and I think though that, I do think that the, that conservatives generally have see the power of this particular constituency in getting them elected. I mean, uh, Donald Trump, certainly, I mean, he doesn't care about abortion one way or another, I think, but it, in his real life, you know, um, but he realized who his base was and he realized that he needed to both say the right things, even though he never says the right things, um, but says what he thinks are the right things for the anti-abortion movement. And of course, he gives them justices and all these lower court judges who are also going to be vital to the overturning of Roe. And so I think he knows exactly where his base is and, and what kinds of things that what kinds of people he's got to court to. Um, and it might be for, you know, he might say to them that he that they need to you know, they can think of themselves as civil rights activists, even though he very clearly also speaks very openly to uh, white supremacists. So I think that Trump and this modern moment has exposed that that duality in in conservative politics, right? That it is they can speak in this language of civil rights while openly courting white supremacists. And that's sort of what it is. How much does or did that white civil rights movement contribute to exacerbate or cause a growth or an increase in white supremacy and white privilege here in the United States. I know white supremacy and white privilege obviously preceded the anti-abortion movement, but how did it contribute in the late 20th century to any expansion of white supremacy and white privilege in the U.S.? Well, I think that um, there's a couple answers to that. Kathleen Ballou, who uh, has written a book about white about the white supremacist movement in the United States, they clearly, she, she says very clearly they are opposed to abortion and, and that that's a vital part of their, their belief system. I, my book is really about these people who are in sort of the more mainstream anti-abortion movement and some of these radicals, not, not sort of the, the very fringe, but some of the, the anti-abortion activists who partake in rescue in the, the rescue movement of the 80s and 90s. But what I see there is it contributes in the way that it it does allow white conservatives to envision themselves as moral. And also, if the logic is abortion is akin to slavery, akin to um, just profound racism, akin to anti-Semitism, and eliminating legal abortion is the only way to solve those, then there's no reason to do, do anything about those other issues, right? Because if you eliminate legal abortion, then all, then justice flows from there. That's the logic. And so there really has been no, that there's been no interest and that there's been no opposition to the gutting of the Civil Rights Act, because that's sort of you know, uh, uh, um, not really dealing with the problem. And really, anti-abortion logic always has been a comparison to these massive historical atrocities that we do know about, like slavery and Jim Crow and the Holocaust. But anti-abortion activists have always claimed that legal abortion is not just akin to those things, but worse. And they make all sorts of arguments to to make this claim, right, that that the numbers are greater than the Holocaust, right? The numbers of abortions 
um, done since the late 60s, right? It's greater. That, and also that its victims are, are more sympathetic because they say over and over again that the victims of abortion are innocent and helpless, right? And that is something that no born human being can be. They cannot be fully innocent and fully helpless. And you have activists say, like, this is worse than the Holocaust because at least Jews could fight back. And and so I think that this is the this is really the extension. It's not just the comparison. It's that all of this other all these other movements are just sideshow to the real problem at the heart of American politics and American life, which is abortion, and that all of this other uh, activism is simply a distraction. And a lot of people see it, and even you write the uh, how abortion became the singular issue for so many conservative Americans. But it's, and I'm not disagreeing with you that it, that's the case, but it is not just a single issue. So often we refer to abortion as a single issue. That is that its only interest is in reproductive rights and doesn't have any impact on any other politics. But you point towards how anti-abortion activism led to social conservatism. So in a way, through social conservatism, abortion isn't a single issue. It touches on every issue. How does abortion change? traditional conservatism into social conservatism, which touches on every issue. Yeah, I think the anti-abortion movement uh, has grounded so much of the socially conservative movement and revolution of the 80s, 90s and onward. And it partly because of its longevity, right, that these other issues sort of come and go. And, you know, if you're in an election and you need to clarify this basic moral difference between your opponent and your conservative or Republican, all you have to do is say life. And you've, you know, you sort of clarified this difference for a whole host of voters. But I think that the people sort of forget, I think also this use of um, sort of tr- traditional family values or the traditional family sort of erases how much that has been a creation of a movement in the late 20th century and has really reoriented so much of the politics of of, um, a lot of conservatives. So I think, for example, um, when Bristol Palin, this is now sort of old politics, but when Bristol Palin was pregnant and unmarried, so many liberals were like, well, why, why aren't conservatives upset that she is an unmarried young woman, that she had sex outside of marriage, right? All these things that should be concerns of conservatives. But because, but but conservatives sort of, social conservatives saw her as a victory because she didn't have an abortion. That protecting the fetus becomes the primary way that conservatives sort of reconceive family and all the politics that sort of come from there, that as long as an abortion is prevented, that that person is a good person, that they can make a good family, and that that person should actually be heralded, right? Which is a a very, um, you know, if you went back 50 years, that just would not be the case. Um, So this is a real reordering, right? It allows also people to see why they oppose, um, it's the, the most compelling argument for that conservatives muster for their their adherence about why gay people um, are sort of errant, right? That that they don't reproduce. And if reproduction and preserving fetal life is at the root of the family, then people who have sex that is not reproductive sex 
are um, sort of not only not real families, but also because they so often correlate gay liberation and gay rights to um, pro-choice movements that they're a part of the problem, right? That they are they are some of these these forces in America alongside feminism and the federal government that are leading America's uh, Americans astray. We are speaking with Jennifer L. Howland. She is author of Tiny You, a Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. Jennifer is assistant professor of, at, of history at the University of Oklahoma. And you can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Prof. Jen Holland. That's with two N's. You, were ta- you interviewed 28 anti-abortion activists. And you talk in your book about how far too often the everyday work, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're not the first person to say this when it comes to activism, it's the everyday work that's often overlooked when it comes to the success of activists. You write, the broad outline of the abortion story offered by various scholars typically culminates and descends into radicalism. Certain elements of this radical movement went further, embracing vandalism, arson, assault, and even the murder of abortion providers. Between the early 1980s and 2009, there were 153 assaults, 383 death threats, three kidnappings, 18 attempted murders, nine murders related to abortion providers. Eight of the murders happened between 93 and 98. These acts were a part of a campaign of terror that touched every abortion provider in America. I do not take issue with this narrative. In fact, its contours anchor my own, but the spectacle of a national rescue movement has obscured the importance of quiet everyday activism that sustained the movement from its beginnings to the present day. So what role has violence played in the war against Roe that you believe the anti-abortion movement has already won, which we'll discuss in a little bit, but what role has violence played? Has it had any negative or positive impacts on the anti-abortion movement? Because the way that the media reports it, you know, it's just, it was just the violence that moved it forward. Yeah, I think that the violence was um, an expression of a lot of the arguments that have been culminating for a long time in the anti-abortion movement. If you believe, like they do, that abortion is genocide, then um, there was a segment of of anti-abortion activists in the 80s that began saying we need to treat it that way, right? And they make all sorts of excuses then about why... Um, all sorts of um, types of violence against abortion providers was reasonable. And, but I think that those were divisive in the movement, those strategies, and they certainly were controversial in, uh, in, among the American populace as a whole. I think they did garner incredible amount of media attention as they were supposed to. This was a, you know, that was a big plan, right? You have a whole city is locked down when, you know, Randall Terry and Operation Rescue came to uh, have one of these, what they called rescues. Um, but what I think, and eventually that stopped mainly by federal law and by prosecution of some of these um, activists uh, uh, under under RICO. But so what I, that, and that was an incredibly important moment, um, especially in terms of visibility for the anti-abortion movement. But I think that the expression of anger and that you saw in the rescues in those years was a product of this more intimate activism that had been a part of the movement from the very beginning, continued throughout the rescue period, and came after it, right? So the rescue period is relatively brief in the second half of the 80s and and the beginning of the 90s um, before it sort of shut down. But all of this intimate activism, that's what sort of 
motivated that outrage at many levels and also has sustained it early on. And I think that's the kind of stuff that Americans did not see who were not privy to it, but also um, they sort of miss the ways that anti-abortion arguments and ephemera have infiltrated so many American lives over the last 50 years. And I guess I'll, I'll say like the, the title of the book comes from um, this one uh, this one little children's book um, that I hope will speak to this this issue of, of sort of everyday activism. It was um, a, a book published by the anti-abortion movement in uh, 1986 called Tiny You, and it was geared towards not just children, but young children. And it sort of says everything that you are was already there at conception. Right. And sort of sort of saying you were right there. You were already fully formed at conception. And then it moves from that into a, a description of abortion. It says parents get confused. Um, they don't know their baby is alive and then they have an abortion. And abortion means that parents force their baby to die. It's very clearly laid out. Right? And this is a book for young children made in 1986. And it's one of so many, right? Um, and so it, it, this book is asking young children to see themselves in fetuses and also imagine abortion as murder and a murder that they could have been victims of, right? And the movement very much does this with so many constituencies that they sort of bring this kind of anti-abortion arguments and ephemera. They have parents give their children fetus dolls to carry around with them, asking all these different people to think about their identities in relationship to legal abortion and think of, um, of abortion as a problem that they need to solve, right? Children become in the anti-abortion worldview survivors of the abortion holocaust, that's what they say, right? Um, that women, as we've already talked about, become traumatized, right, by abortion and, and the that Christians, for Christians, it becomes something that defines their difference for a lot of Christians, not all, right, by any means, but by certain Christians, it becomes this thing that defines their moral code and defines their difference from either other religious people, but also secular society. And so it's this, this kind of ephemera um, that sort of infiltrates American lives for a long time and motivates so many to see this as the moral issue of the time and the politics, the only politics that they really care about. And you write how central it was, the anti-abortion movement, to get people to see the fetus as separate from the pregnant woman. Is this kind of tiny you approach the way that they separated the fetus from pregnant women? And does that, does that set up a relationship between the fetus and the mother? It's almost antagonistic or competitive with one another. Yeah, and a feminist scholars have said this for a long time, right, that um, a lot of these famous images that the anti-abortion movement circulates, right, they sort of zoom in either in utero or to the fetus after it's been aborted, and they sort of separate it from um, the woman who's who's carried or carrying this fetus, and they, they forget that there's this really, this intense, not only relationship, but this dependence that the fetus has on on the woman who's carrying it. Um, and so there is this real desire throughout the movement to both focus on the autonomous fetus as if it is a born child who can live outside the womb, right? Um, and also it's this desire to erase 
um, the woman who is choosing to have abortion. Uh, Anti-abortion activists eventually, as I said, they generate this idea that women are traumatized, but they also, it's hard for them to reckon with what it means. They, they have a hard time blaming or, or figuring out what to do with women who choose abortions because technically, um, if you consider abortion murder, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the women who are, are seeking out abortion not to be the murderer. Uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, right, in terms of the way American law works. But, but they know that that's not, that can't really sell, right? When a quarter of American women have abortions over the course of their lives, that's not going to, that's an argument that they're going to sell. So they have to work to sort of erase her when they can and only bring her into view when they can plausibly claim that she's a victim of abortion because otherwise um, otherwise, the arguments they make are much less compelling, I think, to a general populace. If they can envision, if women, if, if Americans have to envision women going to prison who are ha for murder, Right. So a long time in prison, then then it becomes, I think, a much more morally murky situation, which, of course, is the more the murkiness is um, really at, at the root of all of this. But anti, the anti-abortion movement is really trying to clarify for people that this is a moral evil and that it is really only the fetus that is at stake. And and really women will be not hurt, but helped if abortion is illegal. And, and that's sort of the, the argument they run with, though I think, of course, if um, that is clearly not true in our, our everyday life, but I think if ever abortion becomes illegal, it's going to be very clear very quickly um, that that is not true. I mean, some of these state laws that are unconstitutional have already that, but passed, they don't make any allowances. Some of them don't make any allowances for women. That they, If abortion was murder, then women would be prosecuted. There's just sort of not any way around that, um, which wasn't the true, the truth in the past before abortion was, became illegal, right? That abortion providers were likely to be prosecuted during the illegality period and, and women were certainly punished, but they weren't prosecuted for murder. But I think with the anti-abortion, the successes of the anti-abortion movement in making that argument over the course of 50 years, I think we're many ways facing a future um, if a, if Roe is ever overturned, that that would no longer be the case. I just don't see how it could be the case. You write that by the 1980s, the pro-life movement had reshaped conservatism and the Republican Party, even in the home of one of the most famous and influential new right conservatives, Barry Goldwater. Ger Goldwater, uh, Arizona senator in 1964, Republican presidential nominee, embodied the libertarian anti-tax, anti-federal government conservatism of the 60s, a kind of politics that seemed quintessentially Western, both in, to his supporters in the 1960s and to so historians ever since. Goldwater, however, did not oppose legal abortion. In fact, his wife, Peggy, Goldwater was a longtime and vocal supporter of Planned Parenthood in Arizona, and Barry Goldwater had helped his daughter secure an illegal abortion in 1956, but you point out that by 1980, Goldwater's Senate seat would be threatened and he went anti-abortion and was able to stay in the Senate because of a 9,000 vote victory that was likely due to this change in his position on abortion. Was this move to an anti-abortion platform 
a sign, a show of desperation for the Republican Party. During the 48 years leading up to the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan as president, only 16 of those years was a Republican in the White House, and half of those years were interrupted by an impeachment process that led to the only resignation ever of a sitting president. So was this move to an anti-abortion stance, an act of political desperation for the Republicans who may have been fearing their inevitable doom? I think it was maybe desperation. Um, it definitely was a uh, realization that this was a, const- a constituency that would help them win. Um, and I think that that occurs on federal levels, but also lower levels as well. It just, it, you know, the 70s is this moment where the, the political parties are really being sh- reshaped around issues of gender and sexuality. You know, until 1976, anti-abortion activists really still hoped that the Democratic Party could be the anti-abortion party, but that's increasingly just not likely. Um, and I think people often forget this, that especially when you look to the late 60s, Democrats were much more likely to be anti-abortion um, supporters than Republicans. And, you know, Democrats were more likely to represent Catholic districts, and they were most likely then to sort of oppose some of these early abortion reform laws. And Republicans were more, you know, it, it, it wasn't clearly partisan, but Republicans were more likely to support abortion reform. And over the next 10, 13 years or so, that that shifts both sort of the it wasn't a clearly partisan issue, but that if it was, Democrats were more likely to oppose abortion. That shifts over the course of these next um, these next 15 years. But I think that what you see happen is the, it is something that Republicans sort of see as something that will get them elected. And that is true, that you have people like Goldwater. And I think Goldwater's situation in particular is you see very much the the strategy of it that is backed in no means by belief. Once he's elected, re-elected again, he immediately goes back to his pro-choice ideals. Like it really is just for the election that he says he'll support anti-abortion um, legislation. And then he, he just abandons it very quickly. But I think even Ronald Reagan is another example of this. Not, not so much as Goldwater, but of course, Ronald Reagan was governor in California. He signed one of these very early laws that, that liberalized, that opened up more types of uh, avenues towards legal abortion in the late 60s. Um, but, you know, he very much runs as an anti-abortion candidate in 1980, and his one book that he writes um, while he's in office is about abortion. And yet, he doesn't actually do anything for the anti-abortion movement. He nominates Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court. And anti-abortion activists, especially in Arizona, tell him Sandra Day O'Connor is not the right person. She is not the anti-abortion justice we need. And, you know, Reagan sort of doesn't care because this really clearly was an effort to get a constituency in for a, for a politics that he either didn't believe in or simply didn't care about really enough to to make um, his policy. But by the 90s, you have anti-abortion uh, activists, people who are no longer satisfied with that type of Republican, that this sort of you, you talk a good talk during the election process, or maybe even talk while you're in office, but you don't actually do anything. Um, and so they really uh, sort of start putting their foot down in the late 90s. Um, and, and you have a certain number of anti-abortion people who almost become kingmakers in terms of saying, you need to prove to us 
um, you know, George W. Bush, that you will sort of toe the pro-life line once you get in office or else we're not going to support you. And so in the 21st century, you start seeing the fruit of that effort being born, right? That you actually don't, you get a breed of Republican who's elected that's no longer just going to say the right things, but one that's actually an anti-abortion ideologue who's going to actually work to um, put in anti-abortion laws, put in anti-abortion justices um, that will, in fact, eventually uh, overturn Roe. That's the ultimate goal. And and in the 21st century, you see, you see the the success of that. And that's why, especially in the 2010s, you see this massive increase in the passage of anti-abortion laws. And that's because you finally get not only um, anti-abortion activists to be constituencies, but to be ones that are big enough and strong enough to compel their elected officials to actually implement laws. I thought this writing was outstanding, and I really appreciated the parts where you talk about uh, white supremacy, whiteness, victimization, because it seems like the the amazing impact that the anti-abortion movement has had on conservatism. I, I, I wonder if people, if the Republican Party understood how much of an impact that it would have. How, if you watch Fox News, if you're just watching Fox, you can see anti-abortion politics in nearly everything that they touch on at all times. So it just it just makes me wonder if they knew what an impact the anti-abortion movement was going to have. Sure, we'll exploit you and use you to get a few votes, but I wonder if they understood how much of an impact it would have on conservatism. I've got one last question for you, Jennifer. We've been speaking with historian Jennifer L. Holland, author of Tiny You, a Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Prof. Jen Holland. That's with two N's, Prof. Jen Holland. We've got one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise we do this with all of our guests, Jennifer, we are going to ask you the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And that's the last category. That's definitely where your answer is going to be. You write, historian Andrew Hartman has argued that the conservative culture wars ultimately failed. But did they? Perhaps some socially conservative causes floundered, but the fight against abortion did not and has not. As of 2019, anti-abortion activists have not overturned Roe v. Wade, but by all other metrics, they have won their war. How have they won their war if Roe is still intact and the Supreme Court yesterday overturned the Louisiana abortion case? Yeah. Well, I think they've changed our party politics. As you've seen, you now have a, a party that is entirely dedicated to the anti-abortion movement. And you have states who pass an incredible number of laws that just make it almost impossible to get an abortion. Not impossible, but almost impossible. So I think they've changed parties, they've changed these laws, and they've, they've changed the what we talk about when we talk about abortion. The conversation in the 60s, it is impossible for us to, to deal with that simply because the anti-abortion movement has changed the way we talk about abortion, the way it's in our culture, everything about it. They have been the engines of the abortion debate for 50 years. And unfortunately, we the, the pro-choice movement has been unable to fully reckon with that. I'm still just thinking about when you were saying earlier, 
uh, about how much of our understanding of who Martin Luther King Jr. is within today's media narrative, how much that's determined by the anti-abortion movement in trying to whitewash his very volatile uh, historic past. And it just makes me think about how liberals even and their whitewashed version of Martin Luther King seems to be totally in line with that anti-abortion movement. I just can't get that out of my head. I really appreciate our conversation today. This has been fantastic. And you're yet another person we're putting on the list to be annoyed by us for the rest of your life for us because we're <laughs> going to keep asking you to be back on the show. This has really been a fantastic conversation, Jennifer, and I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Jennifer L. Holland is a historian and author of Tiny You, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement. Follow Jennifer on Twitter at Prof. Jen Holland, that's with two N's. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is... Alex, you tell me what this week's question from hell is. I'm having difficulty asking this question. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a bad idea or not. <laughs> but it's still a question from hell this week, which is uh, who or what, what are do you, you pointing a gun at? Do you think or what is necessary? i uh, give people another option. Mm. Okay. Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Or whom? <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question. I'm ending hell. it with a preposition. I don't really. <laughs> I don't think I need to get into whom's. Uh, the person who has our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. Alex... Do we have any listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch already. Uh, who or what are you pointing <laughs> a gun at? Dan T says $240 worth of pudding. Oh, well, let's see. There's no violence there. Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Luke H says, my reflection. <laughs> see, again. Paolo S says, warm happiness. <laughs> Brian S says, I'm just happy to see you. <laughs> Rosario R says, towards the void before it stares back at me. <laughs> Al B says, Chuck, until he agrees to read the bean book. <laughs> I've been I've been going on and on about this damn bean book, uh, which everyone, if you're listening, uh, next Wednesday I booked the bean book. Really excited for this. I could have swore I told you the first time when you mentioned it to me that we should have him on the show. A book about beans? I'm on board. Any book called Government of Beans? I'm going to try to get you. Uh, Connor S says, "Ma'am, I'm the guy who trims your hedges every week." Ma'am, ma'am, I'm the hedges guy. Garrett S says, "The cop in my head." Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Oh, Graham M says her sense of decency and self-respect. You can guess if you, uh, this is on Facebook who I uh, added a picture of uh, with the gun pointing thing. It's that lady pointing the gun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, famous Trev painting from uh, Doug Henwood book. Uh, no, no, d a different lady. This okay. is a different famous lady at this point. Okay. Uh, Trevor M says the 0.01% of bacteria that the Lysol didn't kill. <laughs> Benjamin C says the Culligan man. <laughs> what the hell? Shane M says Malkovich, because that's Jeff Perry in the striped shirt Stephen s says absolute spirit greg g says pulling a curt michael lp says sparkling drops of retson <laughs> steve s says the mirror as usual who or what are you pointing a gun at Corey g says the weak spots of antifa super soldier mech suits and finally michael c says i'm pointing a gun directly at the difference between magic and momentum the polished marble turns warm in your hand and its weight tilts you to one side perspiration slicks the glass and you feel it begin to lighten in your tightening grip you raise your arm up and back, taut like a slingshot. It's 1999, and you snuck into a midday viewing of The Matrix. You split a too expensive box of popcorn with your best friend. Greedily grabbing the popcorn, your hands touch. You look into each other's eyes and are ashamed you don't feel ashamed. Is there an open mic this week, Dino? <laughs> 
Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of a This Is Hell medical face mask on Thursday's show after Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. You can see that mask right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, Law scholars Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz will be on to talk about their Boston Review piece that we read at Black Agenda Report first. Hold prosecutors accountable, too. In order to achieve lasting change, we must focus on systemic problems that are across the criminal justice system. That includes holding prosecutors accountable, not just police. At Boston Review, they really know how to abbreviate those headlines, don't they? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Jennifer Howland for being our guest today. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.